1: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Electrician Live. My name is Paul Abernathy, and Ronbo, that was just for you. Okay, welcome to the chat tonight, guys. Um, for those that are over on our f- channel, that is actually the podcast. Let me make this a little bigger so it's easy to understand. I want y'all to th- to, to think about possibly coming over and watching us on the live stream. But again, tonight we are simply talking code changes, and there is no presentation because Electrician Live is dedicated for the podcast, but I figured why not? We would go on and simulcast it as well and do the video so we can interact uh, during the uh, presentation. Hopefully everything sounds good. The stream is okay. We've kind of tweaked it a little bit. It is what it is, so hopefully we'll uh, be able to work it all out tonight while we go over some of the code changes. Now, there is an awful lot of changes that took place with the 2020 National Electrical Code. So there is absolutely no way we'll cover them all. Uh, It's just not going to happen. But the good news is we will cover as many as we can and we'll go through it and there'll be a multiple part series. We'll have another one at a later date that'll pick up where we left off. uh, And we'll talk about the different various changes that are involved in it. Okay, so... With that said, let's go on and start getting into some of the changes, but I do want to say first, thanks for joining me every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. All of you that are over there listening on our podcast stream, again, my effort is to try to be able to convey the message so that you can understand it uh, without having any visualization, and I've kind of gotten away from that. Um, because I like doing videos too. So again, the concept of the video was to kind of be this Howard Stern ish where you could see in as I'm doing it, but the dedication is actually to the podcast. So thanks for all of you that are listening over the podcast, but also thanks to all you that follow on the video stream as well over on youtube.com forward slash master the NEC. All right. So without further ado, let's kind of, kind of get started. Um, First thing we'll do is we'll, we'll look at the fact that the code changes. There's some that are what's called code wide. I mean, they impact bigger areas of the code. All right, not just any individual section, but some or, or article. But there could be something that X actually affects multiple. Okay, multiple articles. So I like to touch on a couple of those. But what's interesting is during the code development process, there were a total of three thousand seven hundred thirty public inputs. Now, those were public inputs that were submitted by people like you and me, and during that process, it went through the evaluation by the code-making panels. We looked at different public inputs, uh, and then we put that out as what's called a first draft. Now, the first draft is a kind of our the first public look at the work that we've done on the code-making panels based on what you submitted, uh, and again, if you didn't justify something, then it disappeared, went away. Okay, you had to justify it. So once you justified it, we felt it was justified, then what happens is we put out this first draft. Then we put out what's called a second draft. Okay? And so the second draft is based on what's called public comments. Now, public comments are comments on that first revision or that first draft. And so you get another shot at it, another shot at the pie, I guess. Uh, And then we'll put out after that what's called a second draft. Now, the second draft is going to be all of the information that was submitted during the public comment stage. Of course, we get another bite at it because then it goes to what's called a NITMAM. And the NITMAM is the the notice to make a motion uh, to some change or something that they disagreed with based on the second draft or the public comment stage. And so it goes to another one. And then after that, it even goes to the correlating committee and they'll look at it again and make sure everything lines up good. So there's a bunch of stabs at this thing. So I think it's important to understand that there was, again, over 3,000 public inputs and then ultimately another 1,900 public comments that resulted in changes to the 2020 National Electrical Code. Okay, so some of the changes that we'll look up are global changes. For example, we have a new definition of what's called available fault current. And we also have a definition of fault current, okay? Now, the different terms like available short-circuit current or short-circuit current, they've been used all through the National Electrical Code at certain points. Um, We're real familiar with 110.9 and 110.10, talk about interruptive ratings for circuit breakers and fuses, and of course, short-circuit current ratings for equipment and how they work together. So again... One of the significant changes is that we now have a definition, and we'll see it available fault current, but we also have a definition for fault current. Now, another interesting thing is there's a new diagram that's in the National Electrical Code that actually shows what that looks like when it comes to the definition of available fault current. And basically, your available fault current can be from a source, the say a transformer on a utility, and you have secondary conductors. And at those secondary conductors, there is a certain amount available fault current. Now, usually that's provided by the utility. They'll tell you what it is up to the secondary. And then it goes down and it goes to the line side of your service equipment, which then you'll have another available fault current calculation that can take place there. Remember, the wire from the secondary of that transformer to the supply side of a service disconnect, there's a lot of impedance in that wire. So the available fault current will inevitably drop down as it gets closer down to the service, okay? Uh, now, the whole reason we're doing all this is to make sure that we have enough ability to withstand that available fault current on the overcurrent device, the breaker, let's say it's a breaker, or the actual equipment itself, short circuit current rating. We want to make sure that it can handle it and it's not going to blow up in somebody's face. Uh, and, and so that's the concept. It's all about safety, okay? Now, what's interesting is, Even when I go from that service disconnect down to remote downstream panels, we also have at that panel downstream on its line side, again, potential for available fault current. Okay. And so again, it's going to be less obviously because of the impedance of the wire and everything like that. So again, you you have all these things into effect, but the National Electrical Code now really lays it out so that you can kind of get a really good idea. They added a figure there that actually makes it easier to understand, okay? And in fact, what we'll do is I will go over to the web browser, and oh, we want to get off of me. Uh, obviously, I don't want to see my stream. As And you'll go to Article 100, Definitions, and then you'll see when it gets down to, and scroll down, Fault Current you're going to see that it has this nifty little figure now. And this nifty little figure is basically what I described. You've got the available fault current here at the source. Then you have the overall equipment, which has to have a short circuit current rating. And then you have the overcurrent protective device. That is going to have what's called an interruptive rating. And then, of course, you see that even when it down to the load, You've got an issue where that's also going to be available fault current rating down there. Of course, as the wire comes into a building, then what happens is that it reduces the, the available fault current goes down as you get into the building, okay? We're all pretty pretty good about all that, okay? All right, so again, so we got that new definition. We know what it is, and so we'll kind of get that as we're moving through because we'll, we'll talk about it. We want to get through a lot of changes, as many as we can. The next thing we were talking about is a global understanding of what reconditioned equipment is, what can be reconditioned and what can't be reconditioned, okay? So we need to know. So the code's going to tell us what can and what can't be reconditioned, okay? So code-making panels were all asked to review all of the equipment that is under their review, what they're associated with, like on code panel 17, we had to look what equipment was under our purview, and every other code panel had to do the same thing, and we had to return back whether something could be reconditioned or not reconditioned, okay, so that is globally expanded in the code, okay, now, another thing that changed throughout the code, as you're going to get familiar with, is in the .dot two sections, where they're dealing with definitions, now, what's happened here is we've broken it down into two distinct statements that are being made. If a definition applies just to that specific article, then it'll say the definitions in this section shall apply only within this article. However, what happens in many cases is a definition that might be defined in two of a specific article also applies throughout the NEC as well. So you have another statement that you'll start to see. Which says the definitions in this section shall apply within this article, whatever one you're seeing the dot two in. And then it says, and throughout the code. So, all through the code, you will see maybe a phrase that is going to be defined back to the dot two of that specific article. Now, as we all know, if a definition of a term in the NEC is used in more than one article, then guess where that ends up? That ends up over in what? Article 100, okay? But you do have some distinct definitions that are very much germane to that specific article. And so now you have some distinct statements that let you know that this definition only applies here, or it applies here and everywhere else, okay? Uh, And so, again, chances are most of those that do apply in other places are going to be in Article 100. Now, we also had some significant changes, and we'll see those in 210.8. And these changes were proposed all throughout the NEC, Uh, and to kind of bring alignment in 422 for appliances that require GFCI protection. Uh, Like, for example, it used to be the uh, uh, 210.8D for the dishwasher, which has now been removed, and it's been moved up into 422.5. So now we have dishwashers. Now, the GFCI requirement used to just apply to dwelling unit dishwashers. Not anymore. Now, it applies also to all types of dishwashers. So those are the kind of changes. Another global change that hits you know close to home for me is the term allowable ampacity. Allowable ampacity, which is used throughout the NEC, most notably in uh, Chapter 310, uh, Article three ten, is gone. It's no longer using the word allowable. Okay, again, it is what it is. After conditions of use are applied, or something else is applied. It is basically just the new ampacity, and that's what it is. So allowable really didn't do any service to it. What was allowable meant? It literally was the new ampacity based on whether you're talking about uh, the number of current carrying conductors exceeding three or whether or not the ambient temperature was higher than 30 degrees Celsius. At the end of the day, those are called conditions of use, and the new conductor's ampacity is what it is right? So again, so again, the removal of the term allowable has disappeared all through the National Electrical Code, okay? It's now just an uh, Now, another change code-wise to make you aware of, because again, this one's close to me too, because I sit on code making panel five, the grounding conductor changed to equipment grounding conductor. So we're getting away from the term grounding conductor. And again, the term grounding conductor really wasn't a, a defined term. We didn't have a definition of it. So where necessary throughout the code, when we used the grounding conductor terminology, we looked at it and determined whether or not we were talking about an equipment grounding conductor, whether or not we were talking about something that was really a bonding jumper. Uh, all those things were looked at heavily and were corrected in the 2020 edition, okay? So of a global type of changes, we have the available fault current, the definition now, and that nifty little figure. Uh, we're going to determine whether something's reconditional equipment or not. We talked about the definition so we know that dot two of a specific specific article, whether or not it pertains, the definition of something pertains just to that article, or it was used in throughout the code in other areas. Um. We saw a very distinct realignment of GFCI requirements, and there's some significant changes with GFCIs. Uh, The term allowable for allowable ampacity is gone. It's just ampacity now. And of course, we cleaned up those grounding and bonding terms. Uh, Those are kind of some global things. Now, for the 2020 National Electrical Code, we saw the introduction of four new articles into the code. Okay. Now, it used to be we'd have surge-protected devices and lightning arrestors were in 280, 285. They have been relocated, so now we have a new article, 242, and that is called over voltage protection. Now, clearly, it needed to be right next to 240, which was overcurrent devices, right? So they're aligning themselves a little bit easier. That's under code-making panel 10. That has the purview over 242. Uh, and, of course, they're the ones that, that took everything that was in 285 and 280 and absorbed them into this new article, and it's broken down in into different parts, okay? So part three covered surge arresters, and part two covered surge protective devices. And we have some significant changes when it comes to surge protective devices on one and two family dwellings now. It's going to be required to be uh, have surge protection at the service, Okay. All right, so the next change is we have a new article dealing with medium voltage conductors and cables. Now, there was a lot of confusion in Article 310, especially when you got to 310.60, and it's talking about these duct banks and and configurations, and so many people got confused because if I have 600-volt rated insulated conductors and I put them in the ground in raceways, I really wasn't doing a duct bank. And so... That was basically just conductors put in parallel, if that's what you did, in the ground. Um, But you had all these figures and had all these references in 310.60. Well, good news. All those references to medium voltage or 2001 volts and up to 35,000 have now been removed. They are no longer in 310 anymore. It's its own Article 311, and it's very specific when it deals with medium voltage conductors and cable applications, okay? So just remember that that is now its own separate article. The next thing that we see, the introduction of a new Article 337, and that is for Type P cable. Now, this can come in an armored or an unarmored version. Typically, the conductors are copper, and they're tin-coated. And you could have what's called a outer braid, metallic armor braid, or without, depending on the manufacturer. And it usually has an overall non-metallic jacket that's extruded over the whole assembly. Uh, This is a unique type of cable assembly. Um, And so this is Article 337. And now that deals specifically with a Type P cable assembly, okay? And then lastly, the newest article, I guess I wouldn't say a new article, uh, but it's Article 800, which previously only dealt with communication circuits, but no longer. Article 800 covers the general requirements for communication systems as a whole. And so the previous 800, which was just for communication circuits, that is now under Article 805. So you have 805 you have 820, you have 830, and 840. So that covers what? That covers communication, community antenna and television and radio distribution systems, network-powered broadband, and premise-powered broadband. All of that has a general requirements now under 800, and then it applies to 805, 820, 830, and 840. Pretty much like what happens back in chapters one through four, we have general requirements. So Again, I like this because now it gives us some some teeth when it comes to installation applications for general rules. Again, Article 800 might reference other things like 300.4 for protection of conductors through board holes uh, and things like that, or cables through board holes, but at least we have a general requirement location now when it comes to 800, okay? Now, moving into Article 90, and one thing that's important to us is the scope. Of Article 90. It tells us what we can have covered under the NEC and what is not covered under the NEC. All right. So revisions have been made to Article 90 to add two more items of coverage when it comes to what is covered by the National Electrical Code. Now, for years, people have been injured at marinas and docks, uh, and the people didn't know whether or not what was what was covered by the NEC. Was it the wiring all the way down to the pedestal? Or was it anything to do with the watercraft or the boats? Well, we know that it doesn't apply to the boats or the watercraft other than floating buildings, which are basically dwellings on pylon or floating whatever. And we have rules for that in the code. But we just wanted to make it clear that the shore power that's supplied to ships and boats, in other words, they pull in and they connect to a pedestal on the dock, all of this, as well as any monitoring of leakage current in that system is all covered by the NEC, okay? So there's no question at all now who has purview over that. The National Electrical Code is going to, did I stutter? Is going to cover all the way down to the dock, down to the marina, down to the pedestals, and then when the boats or the ships come in, they can connect to the pedestals. The NEC covers everything up to that pedestal application, okay? And 90.2B1 reveals that the installation in ships and watercraft Other than floating buildings, again, very clear, does not get covered by the National Electrical Code. We're only talking about shore power. That's what we're talking about, okay? All right, so again, um, all of those other things that, that, that are covered also by Article 555, again, changes intended for ships, boats, and other watercraft, again, all covered up in article 555 when it comes to GFCI protection and what's going on down at that marina or boat dock or whatever. Okay. All covered there. Now the new provision was necessary in here to do this because there was so many concerns about electric shock and drowning ESDs are what they call them. Again, this had to do with leakage current from the actual watercraft or boat that was connected to the actual shore power. There was a concern over that. Interesting enough, uh, if I ask somebody whether or not you're more prone to die from drowning due to electric shock in freshwater or saltwater, uh, when I do this in seminars, majority of the people will say saltwater because they think conductive. Well, interesting enough, you're more apt to be drowned due to electric shocking you and get uh, disoriented in fresh water than you are in salt water. Why? Because your body's made up of a certain amount of salt and saline. So when you're in the water, in the water around you, you have dissipation or gradients. And basically, it masks the differences of potential because current travels from differences of potential. Well, if you get into fresh water, then there's a vast difference of potential between you and and the water so chances are because of that difference of potential that you're going to have more chance of electric shock on you and drowning. So again, it's more risky and when you look at the statistics online if you go look it up, more people electric shock drownings take place in freshwater ponds and lakes than they do in anything to do with salt water. And again, it's due to the gradients, okay? Now, the other aspect in item six was added under 90.2a, and this is we're all familiar with electric vehicles, okay? We, we're used to it, and you plug them into the premise system and they charge the electric vehicle. We're used to that. But there are certain vehicles that can actually supply power back to the premise and can be utilized in a standby situation, okay? Um, these are neighborhood electric vehicles, for example, for years have been something that you can charge, but Many cases they become bidirectional flow, and so what happened is bidirectional current flow means that it could actually flow back into the premise. Well, we had no rules for that, we had plenty of rules in 625 for electric vehicles, we didn't have a whole lot of rules for what was doing from the vehicle back to the premise. Well, don't worry, we now are clear, and of course, it probably does incorporate a transfer switch. But in this case, a new item six was added to 90.2a. And it's talking about exporting power from electric vehicles to the premise wiring system. And so that is covered now from the National Electrical Code. So we have to deal with that transfer of power from an electric vehicle back to the actual premise. Okay, All covered now by the National Electrical Code. Now let's kind of move into some definitions. And the first thing that I want to tell you about Article 100 is that we have a new Part 3. Now, if you are a member of my Code Change Series newsletter, I cover all these in even more detail, than we're just covering the surface here. Um, But this new Part 3 to Article 100 contains all definitions that deal with hazardous classified locations. So now you don't have to go hunting and pecking through 500.2 500.2 for all of these definitions, majority of all these definitions that are going to be used in more than one article, and of course that's 500, 501, 502, 503, 511, 513, all of these applications, now we're moving them to one common location, and that's part three. So this is a really good change because it starts giving you definitions of dust tight and, and uh, encapsulation and all these type of definitions that are utilized up in the hazardous location articles now have a solid foundation of where we can put these definitions. Okay, so again, that's the significant change. Part three has been introduced into Article One Hundred. Okay, so the next change again is definitions. Uh, is we talked about dot two? We already heard me talk about it, and again, that's just basically saying, look, this was a wide effort amongst all of the code panels to look in and see whether or not a definition applied specifically to an article that you're working in, or if the definition applies to this section, and then it applies, uh, shall apply within this article and throughout the code in general, okay? Now, in your mind, you're thinking, well, if that's the case, shouldn't it be over in article 100? Maybe, but at this point, you at least have a notification at def- definitions that are going to tell you whether or not a certain definition, which is given in this section, which is typically the .2 section of most articles, uh, is only applicable to this article that it's in, okay? Like if it's in 210, be applicable to this specific article, okay? So uh, just some things to, to think about with that. And uh, let's see here, making sure the stream is still working. It looks like it's still working. So, I haven't lost anybody, so we'll keep keep going. Uh, I think my 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 chat screen logged out, <laughs> but other than that, that's okay. All right, so let's continue on and to another change. So the next change we have is in the definition of the term accessible. Now, when we say this term accessible, we're talking about accessible to equipment And this was a very long definition, in my opinion, in the 2017 code, but it's been simplified. Now the definition in the 2020 for accessible as it applies to equipment is capable of being reached for operation, renewal, and inspection. It's been revised. It's been clarified. It's been simplified, if you will. And it also was a problem because the previous statement seemed to contradict other sections of the code. For example, we have applications where we have electrical equipment rooms uh, previously in 110.26F that says stated the equipment is not accessible if it's guarded by locked doors in conjunction with that. But it said that that equipment is controlled by locks shall be considered accessible to qualified persons. So very confusing in the definition. And there was other places in the code where we said things that were put above a certain height okay, were considered out of reach. And they were considered not accessible. But then again, they're still considered accessible. Despite being above a suspended ceiling, they, they are considered accessible. So we had this height thing that made it consider it not accessible to that equipment, yet we still are able to put equipment up there. So it just didn't make sense. So the clarification now is it's just cable being reached for operation, renewal, and inspection that equipment is considered accessible if you check all those boxes off, okay? All right, so let's see. I'll go back to, so for my folks that are over on the stream that are watching on the stream itself, uh, it looks like the stream has is gone off, so I will refresh it and see if that'll bring it back up for everybody that's watching along uh, in the stream. All right, so those that are on podcast, again, you
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: You could always go over and listen to the, and watch it on the stream if you wanted. All right, so the next thing we're going to get into is some more definitions. How about supply-side bonding jumper? So this is not a new definition, okay, at all. But it was located up in 250, and now it's been relocated back to Article 100. Obviously, supply side bonding jumper covers a lot of applications. So, if you were me and you, and we were looking at a service equipment, and I had service raceways coming in and bringing in service conductors, uh, and I and I had eccentric or concentric knockouts, then I'm going to have to bond those raceways because I have impaired knockouts, and so I want to have a bonding jumper. Well, it's on the supply side, so that is a supply side bonding jumper. Okay. Now, what about a transformer? I have a transformer which, from the secondary up to the panel, let's say it's feeding a panel, and I'm not using a fixed metal raceway, which is permitted to do. I'm using some flex or non-metallic or something like that. Then I have to install in there a supply-side bonding jumper, okay, all the way up. All right. So, again, there are certain applications. The definition of supply-side bonding jumper is it's a conductor installed on the supply side of a service or within service equipment enclosures or for a separately derived system that ensures the required electrical conductivity between metal parts required to be electrically connected. And I, unless it's a fixed metal raceway between the transformer and the secondary conductors to the panel, then if it's flexible or it's non-metallic, then, again, I'm going to have to supply a supply-side bonding jumper there, okay? So, we have the definition of it. It's just been relocated into Article uh, 100 from 250.2, Ken, okay? Makes sense. Now, prior to the 2011 code, the term equipment bonding jumper was used in most locations describing a fault-carrying conductor for a separately drive system. So, all of that's been clarified, fixed, not an issue any longer obviously the 2020 code i think is the most definitive edition so far and of course it should be it's the 2020 edition right and so we'll go on to the next one dormitory unit dormitory unit has been defined now in article 100 now we see a lot of references to dormitory unit in 210.52 Okay, because we have receptacle placements and, and brand circuits that go into dormitory units, but we didn't really know what a dormitory unit was. Okay, so a dormitory unit is a building or a space in a building in which group sleeping accommodations are provided For more than 16 people, okay, so it's more than 16 people, so 17 and more, who are not members of the same family in one room or in a series of closely associated rooms under joint occupancy and single management with or without meals, but without individual cooking facilities. So, okay, so again, with or without meals, but it has to have a, it might have a cooking hall, but the individual... You cooking are not in the actual dormitory units. Sounds like a dormitory to me. So again, definition of it, um, probably derived from other examples like building codes and things like that. But now we have our new definition. And why is it so important? Because dormitory unit is used in no less than four other articles within the National Electrical Code. So it only makes sense that it's here in Article 100, okay? The next thing we'll look at is equipotential plane. And we have a definition of equipotential plane. It was relocated and it was defined in 682. Uh, and it was moved now all the way back to Article 100. And it's accessible conductive parts bonded together to reduce voltage gradients in a designated area. Okay? So, we all talk about equipotential planes when we're talking about uh, around bodies of water. Um, We talk about it also in agricultural. Okay? So, you know, we still have the definition in 547 for equipotential, as it applies specifically to agricultural buildings. You know, cows don't like to give out milk when they feel a shock, okay? Differences of potential they don't like. So what we do with an equipotential plane is literally connect everything together and mask it so there's really no voltage gradients. And if there's no voltage gradients, you can't get rid of the voltage that's on the earth uh, and things like that. But if you put an equipotential plane in there, then again, it's like me touching you, we're at the same potential. Same concept here. All the metal parts are at the same potential. When you have differences of potential, that is when current will flow, and that's when you can feel the difference, okay? But for me and you, we have a definition of equipotential plane. It's been added to Article 100, okay? Now, remember what I said about that fault current and available fault current? We do have new definitions of those, so they were added to Article 100, so, again, you also have a new informational note, then associated figure, and that figure is what we showed you just a minute ago uh, or a little while ago when I showed you the, the actual flow and where the available fault current was. Uh, and all of that's important, again, depending on the equipment, if the code requires that it have a certain uh, available fault current rating, okay, so it can handle it, all right? And all of this definition for fault current and available fault current is really key to basically harmonizing with NFPA 70E, okay? And so that's kind of how this all took place, all right? And so what is the definition of available uh, fault current? The code says the current delivered at a point on the system during a short circuit condition. That's fault current. So what's available fault current? It's the largest amount of current capable of being delivered at the point on the system during a short circuit condition so i have a short circuit at that point on the system what is the available fault current so if we have the source which let's say is doesn't matter with ac or dc i have a source say a transformer secondary conductors available fault current at that point then you have conductors that carry it into the building and connected to the overcurrent protected device at that point you have another available fault current point, okay? And then when it goes from that panel down and out to the load, you have another available fault current potentially downstream at that load, okay? Why is that? Because we could have a piece of switch gear, for example, that has a a main uh, overcurrent protected device, but also the code might require for like industrial control panels to have the available fault current and all the ratings at that location. So you have to be aware of the scheme of this fault current and so that we can calculate what the available fault current is. The good news is there's apps on your phone now. That as long as you know what the available fault current is, say, at the secondary of the transformer, then depending on the length of the conductors, I can calculate it out with just a few clicks and be done. Also, a note was added in there, an informational note, that basically tells us that the utility is going to provide us with that available fault current up to the point where they leave off their system. Now, I don't know that that's always the case because it used to be like pulling teeth to get them to give us anything. But again, an informational note was also added to make it very clear that they're usually will provide that information. Let's hope that's the case. The next definition that we found in the 2020 is free air. So for years, we didn't necessarily know what free air was, but we knew that there were tables of ampacity that let us utilize this free air, which meant that it had a free flow of air over these conductors. And the ampacity was obviously higher than what it was in the normal ampacity table, which was 31015B16, which is now 31016. So these ampacities were higher, and you said, ooh, I want to use that one. But it only applied if it was a free air as it applies to the conductors. So in order to clarify what applies and what doesn't, we now have a definition of free air. And it says open or ventilated environment that allows for heat dissipation and air flow around an installed conductor, not an installed cable. OK, so again, this is going to be free air is going to be the separation of the individual conductors, how you install them, whether it's in a cable tray or whatnot. You get some benefits of the free air ampacity values, again, as long as what you're doing applies and complies with 392 or cable trays or what you're dealing with. Anytime it makes a reference to a free air, now you know what it means as it applies to conductors, okay? Again, it just removed all the confusion because when conductors are in close proximity, then it doesn't allow the heat to flow away. Okay, the one conductor will conduct heat from the other, and it just creates what's called mutual heating. So we have to separate them out. Now, next question people said is how much is how much? I, right, The code doesn't necessarily tell you how much is how much, except for your cable trays. If you have conductors, uh, single conductor cables in the cable tray, well, it might say that in order to be one layer, you have to make sure that the conductors are spaced equivalent to the cable width Uh And that adds separation, okay? But again, we just really want to make sure that we know what free air is in case it gets applied somewhere in the code and we can look at it and say, is that really what we're dealing with? Uh, If I'm running them in a tray and all the conductors are just ran loosely in a tray and they're over top of each other and they're single conductors, let's say, and then somebody wants to come to me and say, oh, yeah, I want to use the free air allowance uh, and they're not separated, then no, you can't use the free air allowance, Okay. Pretty simple in that one, right? Okay. All right, next. Our uh, definitions grounded conductor. Okay, so when we're dealing with the grounded conductor, not grounding conductor, grounded conductor, a new informational note was added to clarify that an equipment grounding conductor is not subject to the identification and connection rules of a grounded conductor. Look, an equipment grounding conductor is theoretically grounded. At some point, all right, you get it? It's a grounded conductor. You're making the connection all back to the same common neutral bus bar. That bus bar has a grounding electroconductor that goes to the earth. We get it. All of the equipment grounds typically are, but you need to understand that the equipment grounding conductor is not to be considered a grounded conductor, okay? Thus, the equipment grounding conductor typically is bare and it's typically green. If it's insul- insulated, it's green or green with a yellow stripe whereas grounded conductors typically are white or gray or three white or gray stripes on any color other than green. So we have separate rules for that, but this is just to make a, a, a statement that, yes, an equipment grounded conductor is indeed grounded, but don't try to consider it a grounded conductor. Trust me. You don't want to go there, even though many people will argue that an EGC is intentionally grounded. Okay? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Again, it is not. And the other thing is an equipment grounding conductor is not a circuit conductor. It's a safety conductor. It runs with the circuit conductors, okay? So the circuit conductors are the blacks, the whites, the reds, all of those that are using for ungrounded or even grounded conductors. An equipment grounding conductor is not a circuit conductor. It's an equipment grounding conductor. It's part of this electrical safety system. Okay, so maybe that'll clear up some stuff that people get confused over maybe. Uh, The next definition that we have in Article 100 that's new for you and me is the term habitable room. I don't even know if I have a button for that anymore. Hold on. We have a new one. All right. So what that means is anywhere in the code that makes a reference to habitable room, we now have a definition. We know what habitable room is. It is a room in a building for living, sleeping, eating, and or cooking, but excludes bathrooms, toilet rooms, closets, hallways, storage, or utility spaces, and similar areas. So now, anywhere in the National Electrical Code that makes a distinct reference to habitable room, we now have a definition of what a habitable room is, okay? So this was added to Article 100. Now, where did we get this? It's kind of the same term that was in the NFPA 5000 document, which is the Building, Construction, and Safety Code. Uh, And in order to keep consistency, because again, this is an NFPA document, and of course, NFPA 70, the one we're talking about, is also an NFPA document. So harmony is a good thing, all right? So the next change we have is the term island mode, okay? Now, island mode is... An operational mode for standalone power production equipment, and we also have a definition for power production equipment other than utility. Because so that could be a flywheel, that could be um, uh, let's see, that could be a PV, that could be wind generation, uh, all of that.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. chumbacasino.com. No by law. plus conditions apply. website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper?
1: all considered a power production equipment, okay? So we do have a definition for that as well. But when we're talking about the island mode, it's just the ability for something to operate uh, either as an isolated, you know, microgrid or at a multi-mode inverter or as an interconnected microgrid, but it can disconnect itself from all of that and run in its own mode, okay? Basically like an island, you with me? By itself. So the definition is, The operational mode for a standalone power production equipment or an isolated microgrid or for a multi-mode inverter or an interconnected microgrid that is disconnected from an electric power production and distribution network or other primary power source. The ability for it to stand alone, okay, that is what's an island mode, okay? Now, an informational note was added, says, isolated microgrids are distinguished from interconnected microgrids, which are addressed in Article 705. So, 705 is going to deal with the interconnected microgrids, whereas a microgrid, which has maybe PV and another, like a wind generation, it's standalone, it's separate away, okay? That would be an isolated microgrid, okay? Uh, Let's see, what else do we have? about all i want to cover on that labeled article 100 dealing with label a new informational note was was added explaining that even though a section of the nec may require a product to actually be labeled it is common practice to have the label the symbol or other identifying mark applied to what the smallest unit container when does this come into play i might have fittings and i don't have the mark or label on the fittings okay But I can have it on the container that holds the fittings, okay? So all through the code, there was different things that addressed it that was dealing with things that were not only just, say, listed, but also were required to actually be labeled. So they'll say listed uh, and labeled or both, okay? And a good example of this, again, is, is wire binding devices. Many people refer to them as wire nuts. That's a trademark of IDEAL. Okay, and you make connectors up together. Okay, they're required to be listed and labeled, but they're too small. You wouldn't get that on there. That's okay. Put it on the packaging, perfectly fine. Okay, all right. Now, talking about reconditioned, Article 100. Now we have a definition of reconditioned, and again, this is going to attempt to make it pretty clear and what we have to do with all the other marking requirements that we have in 110.21, okay? So, the new definition for reconditioned was added in Article 100, uh, and an informational note that reminds us that, hey, guess what? The term reconditioned. if you ever see the term rebuilt, refurbished, or remanufactured, guess what that's slang for? Reconditioned, okay? So, All throughout the code, we've had changes to whether it's switches, receptacles, switch gear, panel boards, circuit breakers. We now have definitions, uh, well, I shouldn't say definitions. We now have direction within each one of those specific articles to whether or not something can be reconditioned or it cannot be. And the code will tell you that now. That was a big debate during the NITMAM stage of the 2020. But again, for example, GFCIs, AFCIs. Can't be reconditioned, for example. All right, and it states it in two hundred and ten that can't take place. All right, so again, all of this also aligns with NEMA policy on reconditioned equipment, and in their policy. And I used to work for NEMA. We will tell you what is recommended because NEMA is made up of manufacturers, and so again, they sit on certain code panels. So all of this came in in order to be able to make it clear what can be reconditioned and what can't be reconditioned. Okay. Um, let's see if I'm going to, I know I'm getting behind. So, uh, the next thing that was added that I'm going to talk about is 110.12C cable and conductors. That was added in the scope of mechanical execution of work. And again, we had requirements in chapter seven and chapter eight dealing with this communication cables and conductors as well. So a new subdivision was added ...to 110.12, and that was C, and it's titled Cables and Conductors, all right, and it's been added now to 110.12, which, again, the overall title of that is Mechanical Execution of Work, okay, so includes relocating the requirements that used to be up in .24 sections, from communication articles to in chapter 7 and 8, generally gives us those general requirements, so we're going to be okay with that, now, Conductors and cable supporting concerns about damage are addressed in both 110.12C, but guess what? Remember we said we had the new Article 800, and we were talking general? So now we have provisions under twenty four as well in 800 dealing for those communication applications. All right? Now... Neat and workmanlike construction and people putting that in is in the eye of the beholder. Again, as long as it's code compliant, and it works. Again, what looks beautiful to some people might not look so beautiful to other people. But again, if it's compliant and it goes in, again, beauty is the eye of the beholder, right? So again, this one right here was simply trying to bring in some allowances uh, into this uh, 110.12C. Uh, for example, talks about things like Uh, cables and conductors are secured by hardware such as straps, staples, uh, hangers, etc., designed not to damage the cable. It also reminds you that you have to comply with all the rules in 300.4 and 300.11. That's the location above suspended ceilings. And it also reminds us now that if you want to use a non-metallic cable tie or other non-metallic cable accessories to secure and support cables in an environmental airspace, which is covered under 300.22C, Okay, if you're gonna do that, for example, I can have MC cable above a suspended ceiling in an environmental airspace if it's being utilized as that. That's a whole different story. But they have to have low smoke, heat release, uh, low smoke and heat release properties on those cable ties if I wanna use them on the MC, let's say that's up in, or if I wanna use it on any, let's say, cable assemblies that are up there, or maybe the smaller stuff that is rated for plenum that would be above the suspended ceiling. Okay. It's been evaluated for it. Maybe it's a CMP rating on it. Well, that's fine. But if I'm going to tie it up with tie wraps, which is pretty common, then you just have to make sure that they have a listing for use in that environment. They're listed for low smoke and heat release properties. Okay. Then you're okay. Uh, The next change is 110.14D. Now, this caused a lot of turmoil for people in the 2017 code, and this was the torquing requirement. Now, previously, it required something to be calibrated, or a calibrated torquing tool. So this went around the country, and every inspector was like, oh my God, now I have to see this calibrated torquing tool, and you need to give me a certificate that shows me that it's calibrated. Um, Well... That created a lot of mess because all the way down to the receptacles are still required for it to be torqued at a proper value, okay? Usually, those are going to be in inch-pounds, and then when you get to bigger terminations and lugs, it's going to transition to what's called foot-pounds, okay? You start out with inch-pounds, then you make it up to foot-pounds, all right? But there are other ways to do that than just having a calibrated torquing tool. Now, you can use a calibrated torquing tool. That's fine, but that's not the only way to do it. So in order to give guidance for that, three new informational notes were presented in this, okay? And again, the emphasis still is that you have to torque it to the termination correctly. Still there. You need to do that. However, in the 2020 code, it doesn't necessarily, you're not going to see the word calibrated, okay? Now, the HJ says you got to torque it to a certain value, That's what the equipment says. This is always required in 110.3B, by the way, because the equipment gives a torquing value. So even though 110.14D showed up, uh, everybody freaked out, it was always required to meet the rating of the enclosure, the the rating of the manufacturer's determination on its terminals. So that's nothing new. But this term calibration just kind of made it difficult to do that, right? So we have the change now in informational notes that are going to tell us what is acceptable. And another example of that might be a snap bolt, which, or a little device that snaps off when you get to a certain torque value. And that would be okay and acceptable if that's supplied with the equipment and the manufacturer was okay with it, perfectly fine. Could I still use a torquing wrench or a torquing screwdriver? Absolutely. Okay. Perfectly okay to show the actual inspector what you're doing. Okay not a problem. It just got rid of the the term calibrated because that's just makes it seem like there's only one method to do it. And there are other methods to do this. Okay. So making it clear. Now, 110.22a, which is the identification of disconnecting means. Now, this is pretty much the normal thing where we have a disconnection means and it's sitting out in the middle of nowhere and it's supplying something. And we need to know what this disconnect cut actually is doing. What is it for? Okay. So that's pretty normal. But in the 2020 code, it also required, and this doesn't apply to one and two family dwellings, by the way. So I know people are going to go, okay. But obviously it didn't apply also when even when we had a disconnect that was right next to an outside air condensing unit. It's pretty obvious what that disconnect's for, right? No need to mark it as AC disconnect. It's right there beside the disconnect. So that was always been allowed, that scenario. Now, In the 2020 code, I am required to identify the source of the branch circuit or feeder for a disconnection means, okay? Now, again, this doesn't apply to one and two family dwellings, okay? Everything else it applies to. So now if I have that disconnect, I have to state where the source is and what the number of the source is, okay? So, again, I have to mark it with a label, to identify exactly what this disconnect is for i'm also required to provide identification of the circuit source that supplies this disconnect now okay now again this is the same identification requirement that was is required in 408.4b for switchboard switchgear and panel boards so it's it's not something that's going to overly shock us pardon the pun but again if it's a disconnect even in a dwelling by chance and you don't know what it covers, you need to label that disconnect, unless it's obvious. It's right next to the piece of equipment. Now, the identification of the source, now that only applies to everything other than one and two family okay? dwellings. Okay? So, again, you have this, and that's only the portion that identifies the source that exempts one and two family. Okay? You still have to identify or mark or label the disconnection means, unless, of course, it's obvious what it's disconnecting. Okay, that's not new. All right. Okay. Now, large equipment. This became one that was a change in the 2020 code that was probably a pretty good change. There's still some of my recommendations. We probably could tweak it a little bit, but let's talk about this. So, when you have large equipment, what constitutes large equipment? Now, typically, large equipment was 1200 amps or more and over six feet wide. Now, we have to have working clearance, and that's 110.26A1, A2, and A3, and that is the depth, the width, and the height. That's already established. We didn't mess with that, okay? That, nothing's been messed with that. Now, the large equipment rule of 110.26C2 uh, is talking about egress and uh, uh, entrance and egress from the workspace for this large equipment. Okay, So we've had a change in this revision to large equipment for the working space access. Okay, Now, again, you have to have uh, the working space to address the hazardous presence by two or more service disconnects in combination that could be 1,200 amps or more. So prior to this, it was locked at 1,200 amps or more and over six feet wide. Now, what happens if I had two pieces of equipment that were 600 amps in this room? Both of this equipment was 600 amps. Neither one of them was over six feet, but neither one of them was 1,200 amps. Yet the hazard still was there. So for the 2020 code, what they've stated for service disconnection means where two or more service disconnect enclosures are installed with combined ampere rating of 1,200 amps or more and over six feet wide in the combination. The large
0: equipment rule in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Rules will
1: now apply. And those large equipment rules generally were that I have to have an entrance on either end of the equipment, okay, for access to and egress from the working space. So now, if I have a room that has a, a 600 amp service uh, disconnect and another 600 amp service disconnect together they're 1200 amps and together they're over six feet wide say this one was three feet and this one's three feet okay so again in this case again uh, of course it does say over six feet wide so for our argument we'll say each piece of equipment is three and a half feet because i know i have those people out there that'll say okay so it is six and a half feet total whatever now i've got to have that now of course you still have your single entrance allowance uh, if you have double the space okay or you have no obstruction from the from the the uh working space out of the room okay which might be one door at the back end facing directly into the working space you have some allowances there to reduce it down to one entrance to an egress from but you have to meet all those rules The other significant change here is if that piece of equipment has doors that open and the doors that open will impede the entry to or egress from that working space for that large equipment, then you got a problem. Now you're going to have to go back and get more room to be able to get around those doors because the doors, you might have had the required working space. Maybe it was only four feet or whatever you needed. You were fine. But then you open these doors. And maybe at this point, I'm unable to to get out of this building. So if I have doors that open, then I need to make sure I have enough room back because those doors cannot impede entry to and egress from the working space for the large equipment, okay? Real important. And why do we say this? Because I could have two pieces of equipment that are facing each other, okay? One in front of me and one behind me, and I've got the required working space. However, I open up one of the doors and now somebody could get trapped in here or over on the other, and they can't get out. So again, you have to take that into consideration. In a world where designers and owners are giving us less room in these equipment rooms, uh, this is going to be a, a, a thing that's going to bug them. But they could get dead fronts equipment, and it doesn't have doors on it. Then, you, then this is not going to be a big issue for you. okay? But just remember, I could have a room. And I can have just enough space to have my working clearance to the wall. And I have entrance and egress on either end. But once those doors are open, then I could be trapped. That's where this rule is going to come into play. Okay? Uh, Now, we have a change for personnel doors. So if the egress is within 25 feet of that working space, I have to have panic hardware. Well, in the 2017 code, it just said listed panic hardware. So in the 2020 code, it adds or listed fire exit hardware. Again, they both function very similarly. One is under UL305. One is under UL10C. Uh, The difference is the listed fire exit hardware can either integrate with the fire alarm system or activate independently on its own. But again, they're both are listed hardware. You can't have something like doorknobs or whatever. Obviously, if you're in an art blast, you're not going to be able to grab a door, and so you have to be able to push it to be able to get it open. So again, this is for you and me. This is for the electrical worker that's working in equipment. Okay, and not everybody follows proper PPE. Again, people think some people think they're Superman out there, and that could be a serious concern. Okay, now chapter two. We have a 200.3 connection to grounded systems. So the only significant change in this was that this applies to all premise wiring, not just interior. So let me. What are, what are we talking about here? When I have the utility coming in and I have its grounded system supply conductor, and then I have the premise wire grounded conductor, they typically come together in a common terminal bus. Okay, and then of course from that bus we'll go down to the grounding electroconductor and do everything that we need to do, but they come together. Well, in the previous code, it made it clear that in in its way, its words were that this could only take place on the interior. Okay, so the interior implied that a grounded conductor is only required in the supply system if the premise wiring is located inside of the actual building. Well, We know that this premise wiring can also be located outside of the building. And again, with the new rules that are for emergency disconnect, we might have service equipment outside. So again, removing the term interior and putting premise wiring in there makes the language really clear and easy to understand. And this also correlates with 25024C, which is called Grounded Conductors Bought to the Service Equipment. So whether it was outside or inside, still going to apply. So semantics of the wording, but getting rid of that term interior really just goes back to what me and you've been doing all along, and it's not that big of a deal, okay? Identification of terminals, 200.10b, means of identifying grounded conductor terminals or screws. Now, previously, it only dealt with the color white, okay? Okay. But most of the terminals or screws that are dealing with the grounded conductor are what? Silver or chrome, which chrome is silver in color, okay? So when we're identifying of terminals and we're dealing with the grounded conductor, we simply added the word or silver in there. So it's either white or silver, okay? And again, silver and chrome synonymous, same as brass and gold are the synonymous. We know what they are, okay? So that was changed and applied to the code. And again, this also was applied to receptacles, polarized attachment plugs, and cord connections for plugs and polarized plugs. Uh, again, those terminals, silver or chrome in color, and brass and gold. But what was added was the or silver, okay? All right, measurements of GFCIs to 10.8. Here we go into GFCIs. So one of the first significant changes that we have is in the measurement. How do we measure the, what is, say, from the sink? How do we know? If it says anything six feet from the top inside edge of the sink or bowl, how do we measure that? Well, in the 2017 code, let's use a kitchen. and Let's use a kitchen sink, and we add a disposal under the sink. Now, in the 2014 code, if it was in six feet, GFCI required. In the 2017 code, it said without passing through doors or doorways in there as well. And that actually broke up the measurement. So if you had a door on the cabinet, then your measurement stopped at the cabinet. So that receptacle under the counter did not have to be GFCI protection. Now, you might have done it anyway. Please don't tell me you think that's a wet location because it's not. If it is, you need to call a plumber. Okay, so at the end of the day the 2020 code removed the phrase to door in doorway. So by removing door or doorway, those obstacles to the measurement are now removed. Okay, So measuring that sink down to the garbage disposal, now if it's within six feet of the top inside edge of the sink, then guess what? It's going to require GFCI protection now. So where else does this come into play? Well, you also know that that receptacles supply that are within three feet of the sink that are serving the countertop in a bathroom have to be GFCI protected under 210.8A. Well, what if I have a bathroom and I have an opening, which was a doorway, and then I had a receptacle just on the inside wall where it was now my master bedroom? If that receptacle is within six feet of the top inside edge of the bowl or sink, okay, then it's going to be required to be GFCI protected. Yep, because used to be that doorway would stop that measurement. But conceivably, somebody could plug something in it and then bring it around the corner, maybe, and use it inside the bathroom. So the the risk is there, okay? So we have that measurement now, and again, doorway and door has been removed totally, okay? So it's not going to stop your measurement. Now, let's talk a little more in depth about 210.8a, you used to say previously it was 125 volts, single phase, 15 or 20 ampere receptacles installed in, and it gave you 10 locations, okay? Now we're up to 11 locations, and we removed the 15 and 20 ampere. Now, we didn't remove it in a sense that it still doesn't require it for 15 and 20. It still does. It, it is. But now we've raised this threshold. So in dwelling units, which is 210.8a, we now have the change, And the change is GFCI for dwelling unit protection has been expanded to all 125-volt through 250-volt receptacles supplied by a single-phase branch circuit rated 150 volts or less to ground installed in the specific areas that are listed in 210.8A. So what does this mean for me and you? Well, you know there's a sink on that countertop in the kitchen. It's required all receptacles within six feet of a sink top inside edge, are going to require GFCI protection. What if the receptacle for my 50 amp range is within six feet? GFCI protection. What about the basement? One other change we have is that it used to be only unfinished basements required GFCI protection. No longer. In the 2020 code, and of course we'll probably get to that in a minute, the 2020 code, it now requires GFCI protection protection on all receptacles in an unfinished basement and a finished basement. So now it just says basement, okay? All of them, because they feel that a basement could flood even if it was finished. So all receptacles in a basement now have to be GFCI protected, okay? But the big point here is it covers all receptacles. Doesn't matter the amperage range when it talks about the dwellings, because they're going to be pretty limited anyway, and they're going to require the GFCI protection now in a broader range. It's no longer just 15 and 20 ampere at this point. Okay? So 210.8A5, which again was that one we just talked about, basements. Again, doesn't matter anymore whether it's finished or unfinished. Doesn't matter. It has got to have GFCI protection. On all receptacles, one hundred and twenty-five volt through two hundred and fifty. Okay. Now the argument was that if you had a conductive floor surface, it didn't matter whether it's finished or unfinished. Uh, you still could have prone to moisture and the by flooding and all this. And okay. And so again, my question is, where is this going to stop? If I've got a slab on grade and I'm in a flood area, are you now going to soon make me require GFCI for my all my receptacles on the first floor? Well, not yet, but. It could be coming. All right. So the next change is 210.8 A11. Now, this is GFCIs for indoor, damp, and wet locations. So, if it's an indoor, damp, or wet location in a dwelling unit, it's going to require GFCI protection. Okay. So. Covers the areas in the damp or wet locations. Uh, And this also reaches out to cover all of those locations that are, that are not within six feet of a sink, a bathtub or shower area. So if I have, let's say, a come into a mud room with a drain in the floor and it has a, a sprayer there that I use to wash the dog, then it can conceivably call that a damp or even a wet location. And then any receptacles that would be in that location would have to be GFCI protected because kind of where it's, where it's driving in that application. Okay. Now, again, this could apply to a mudroom, which doesn't have any sink to measure within six feet of. Okay. But if you wash dogs in there, it has a sprayer in there. Um, I think if it's just tiled floor and you call it a mudroom, but I don't see anything that can have water, then I'm probably not going to call it a wet or a damp location. But if I have a, a, an ability in there with a floor drain and it's uh, not all mudrooms, by the way, have floor drains. just so you know, and again, and there's a way to spray water or something in there, uh, then I might classify that, or an inspector might classify that as an indoor damp or wet location, depending on the condition uh, that's applied. And so then that's going to require it to have GFCI protection. Now we're going to go over to 210.8B, other than dwelling units. So now we're out of dwelling units, and we're in other than dwelling units. So there's new GFCI requirements for non-dwelling units were added. For damp locations was added now. It used to have wet, but now it added damp. Accessory buildings. Now we had that in dwelling units for garages and accessory buildings. Okay, they were an ad- additional building to the dwelling unit. Required GFCI protection. Well, now in other than dwellings, you could have other than dwelling application, commercial building that has an accessory building. You now it's going to require GFCI protection. Okay, it's very similar to what we would have in a dwelling unit application, accessory building probably no different either way. Okay. It's just a building to put stuff in for accessory building. Right. Um, now also what we're going to see in 210.8 B is the addition of laundry areas are now required to be applied. Okay. So the laundry area rule is going to be applied and that is going to be 210.8 B 11. Oh, I should have told you the accessory building one is 210.8 B eight. And the indoor damp location requirement is going to be um, 210.8B6, okay? And that was added to the indoor wet location was already there. Wet was already there, but they added the damp to that, okay? And then, of course, the last one that they added was 210.8B12. Now, this was dealing with bathtubs and shower stalls, kind of like what we have in dwelling applications, but again, there's a lot of commercial buildings and office buildings that have separate bathtubs or shower stalls, I don't know about the bathtub, but I know they have the shower stalls, okay, so they exist in commercial and industrial type facilities as well, they have locker rooms and and, and things like that, so um, why not have a separate shower stalls or bathtub area, okay, So GFCI protection is now added to receptacles installed within six feet of the outside edge of non-dwelling unit bathtubs and shower stalls. You knew it was coming, and so there you go. Now, in 210.8 B2, which deals with kitchens, we did have something that was added to this in order to make sure that it covers other types of applications in other than dwelling listings, like ice cream parlors, coffee shops, smoothie stores, um, uh, cookie shops, all of those things that have those typically stainless steel countertops and things like that, which wouldn't have fallen under the rules for kitchen. So again, all receptacles in a kitchen and other than dwelling is going to require GFCI protection. But because it wasn't a kitchen or didn't meet the definition of kitchen, It didn't require it. Okay, well, get ready. We have a change. So additional language was added to clarify that areas not defined as a kitchen with a sink and permanent provisions for either food preparation or cooking, or is important because it could be just food preparation and no cooking at all, which is typically like something in a Starbucks, okay? If that's the case, then the potential for shock is there. So now you're going to have to have GFCI receptacle applications in 210.8b2. Okay, same potential shock hazards there, even though you don't have permanent cooking. Okay, so there you go. Now, 210.8d, which was GFCI protection for specific appliances. Now, in the 2017 code, that said dishwashers, and it was for those in a dwelling unit. That's been removed. And moved to 422.5A7. So that's been removed up into Code Panel 17's purview, which is what I'm in. And we've taken control over that. Now, the GFCI requirement isn't just for dwellings anymore. It covers all dishwashers. Why should we just say for dwellings? It's all of them, okay? All right. And so, again, that has been done and been removed. So now what 210.8D is going to give reference to 422.5 and talking about the different types of appliances, okay, and up there is where we're going to cover what requires GFCI protection and what doesn't, okay, so basically that's a bridge between 210.8d to the GFC requirements in 422.5, so that's how we're making that, that connection, if you will, okay, uh, the next thing would be 210.8E, GFCI for equipment requiring servicing. Okay, so this was one that kind of melded together. You know that you have to have a receptacle within 25 feet in other than dwelling applications of the actual service equipment, okay? We have to have a receptacle, and it has to be in the same area, all right? doesn't apply to dwellings, but it does apply to other than dwellings, right? So you have to have that. Well, we also remember we had to have a receptacle, That was for the HVAC application, so within 25 feet. Okay, so we harmonized those into 210.63. So this reference in 210.8E is letting us know that GFCI protection is now required for all receptacles required by 210.63, which covers what? The HVAC equipment now, uh, indoor service equipment. That's, again, that receptacle within uh, 25 feet of the service equipment. And indoor equipment requiring dedicated equipment space. So if I have a dedicated equipment space and I have a receptacle for that equipment, that it's going to require GFCI protection on that receptacle. Okay, so that's all covered. And again, this has to do with uh, receptacles located up to 25 feet from the equipment. That discourages the use, obviously, of extension cords. uh, And that's something we've had in the code for quite a while. But now we just have one statement under 210.8E that's telling you, hey, all those locations in two hundred ten sixty three, GFCI protection is going to be required for those receptacles. That's what this rule is basically saying, okay? Now, this is the one that's going to cause people to, I don't know, um, this was based on a single death that took place, right? Uh, so a death took place, and that's what kicked this one in. And what it is is GFCI protection is now required on dwelling unit, Outdoor outlets supplied by a single phase brand circuit rated 150 volts or less to ground and 50 amperes or less. This would include the outdoor HVAC unit as well. So, yes, you're going to have to have GFCI protection on your outside air conditioning unit. Probably, obviously, this is going to be back at the breaker, by the way, obviously. And you have your disconnect there. And then you have your flex that goes down to the air conditioning unit. Uh, the condenser unit, that whole thing is going to have to be GFCI protected now um, under the 2020 National Electrical Code. This resulted from one that, by the way, was faulty wired anyway, but somebody was working on it and got electrocuted. So now you're going to have this requirement. Now, this does not apply to lighting outlets outside, okay? This is not applying to those. Um, It's also not applying to... um, any receptacles that might be out there for, uh, or outlets that are out there for de-icing or snow melting applications. Not going to apply to those or any outdoor lighting outlets as well, okay? Now, this has nothing to do with the requirement for the GFCI on the lighting outlet that's in the crawl space, okay? Don't get that confused with that. It has nothing to do with it it, and it basically expresses that it's really trying to capture those outlets out there. And What is an outlet? It's a point in the system where we take power from the system. Okay, that's what the outlet is. We're not talking about just receptacle outlets. They're already receptacle outlets are already required, but they're devices. So receptacles they're already required by two ten point eight a in order to be GFCI protected. So that's not what we're talking about. Okay, so yes, this is going to be uh, going to have to deal with uh, two hundred forty volt uh, motor driven pumps. And compressors again 240 volts again, it's 150 or less to ground. So, one leg to ground is 150. So, uh, up to 50 amperes or less is going to be GFCI protected now. Okay, so get used to that one. All right, 210.11 C3 bathroom branch circuits. Additional language was added. that only the bathroom receptacles that are required to be 20 ampere rating are those that are there to supply 210.52D. And that is receptacles that are serving the countertop. And you know what we're talking about with that. It is the receptacle that's required to be at least three feet, from have a receptacle within three feet of the actual sink. That is the rule. And any other that would be serving the countertop, those would be 20 amps. You know what? Okay, it says in 210.52D, At least one receptacle outlet installed within three feet of the outside edge of each basin in a dwelling unit bathroom. Incidentally, for those that get confused with this, if I have two basins, that does not mean that I have to have one receptacle for each basin. If one receptacle is within three feet of this one and and that same receptacle is within three feet of this one, then I'm compliant. But if I put it in a sidewall and it's three feet from this one, but it's more than three feet from the other one, then I'm going to have to install another one on the other side. Okay, and those are 20 amps. But this is not to say that I could not have another circuit run to a bathroom. And that circuit might be doing some other receptacle that's not serving the countertop. Well, that doesn't have to be 20 amperes. Okay, that could be 15 amperes. We're only talking about this rule, only applies to the 20 amps that's serving the requirements for the countertop or work surface. Okay, most notably, again, 210.52D. That's the application here. Just trying to make it really, really crystal clear in how we interpret that, okay? So again, if I had a receptacle, let's say, down on the wall, that's for whatever reason, maybe it's a big bathroom, okay? Then that is not required by 21052 d It does not serve the countertop. It is just there because I want it there. It is over there, all right? The ones that serve the countertop that is one or more 120 volt, 20 amp brand circuits required to slide the, supply the bathroom receptacles outlets that are required by 21052 D. Those receptacles within three feet of the sink. It's important because some people believed that any receptacle that was installed in a bathroom had to be 20 ampere, and that's just not the case. Now, they all have to be GFCI protected if they're in a bathroom. We're okay with that. But they don't have to be 20, all of them don't have to be 20 amp. okay? Um, Now, 210.11C4, garage branch circuits. Again, this one only applies if you have a garage, okay? And if it is a detached garage, if it has electric power. If it doesn't, if it's a detached garage without electric power, then I don't have, obviously, have to consider a branch circuit for it. Okay, so remember that. Now, Section 210.52G1 requires at least one receptacle outlet to be installed in each vehicle bay of an attached garage and in each detached garage with power, by the way, with these required receptacles located not more than five and a half feet above the floor. Okay, so again, um, to meet that requirement. Okay, garage receptacle outlets not required by 210.52G1 do not have to be supplied by a dedicated 120-volt, 20-amp brand circuit, or even be supplied by a 20-amp rated brand circuit at all, okay? So additional receptacles in there that are not there to supply the vehicle bays, I might have extra circuits in there for whatever reason I want, and those could be 15-amp brand circuits if I want them to be. As long as I meet the general rule, the additional stuff I add is just additional, Okay, I've met the code already. So that's just what it was trying to, to clarify and make it really, really clear. Okay, now, AFCIs, again, a, a hot topic around the country when it comes to AFCIs, but AFCIs has expanded a little bit. So 210.12C, AFCIs for patient sleeping rooms and nursing homes and limited care facilities have been added. So AFCI protection has been expanded to the patient sleeping rooms dealing with the nursing homes or limited care facilities. And basically, it was added to the guest rooms and guest suites application as well. So all of that now is being added in the requirements uh, for AFCI protection, okay? And talking about 210.12D, this is the extension and modification, okay, of a branch circuit and whether or not it requires... The uh, AFCI protection. Now, guest rooms and guest suites of hotels and motels have been added to the areas that require GFC protection for extension and modification. So they were added to this rule when it comes to extension or modification of those brand circuits in guest rooms or guest suites of hotels and motels. So that's been added. So here's what it says. AFCI protection is now required for dwelling units, dormitory units, Guest rooms and guest suites of hotels and motels where branch circuit wiring is modified, replaced, or extended. So again, we're just adding on here. We had dwelling unit. We have dormitory unit. Now we had guest room and guest suites of mobile home and hotels. All gets added to that list when it comes to the extension and modification. Okay? And the reason is that, be honest with you,
0: prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Even in motels or hotels,
1: guest rooms, guest suites, they're all like dwelling units, more or less, right? So again, if the rules should apply to dwelling units or or dormitories, then I guess it probably should apply to these as well, okay? Now, by exception, ASCI protection is not required for an existing branch circuit conductors where extended not more than six feet and does not include additional outlets or devices other than splicing, okay? Now, This is pretty important. This applies even dwelling unit in all of them. If I've got a panel and let's say I'm doing a service change and or I'm doing a service up uh, heavy up or whatever I'm doing on it. All I'm doing is change it, but I didn't change any of the branch circuits. Then I'm not required to increase those to AFCI protection under the exception because I didn't move the brand circuit. I didn't extend the brand circuit. I didn't add any outlets or devices to the brand circuit. All I did was change the panel. Now, what if I have to move that panel a couple feet? Well, as long as it's not more than six feet, and theoretically, the exception says, okay, if I'm not moving more than six feet, then in my mind, I'm not really extending, and I'm not really modifying the brand circuit. Well, in reality, I, I obviously I am, at least up to six feet. But as far as the code's concerned, no, it's okay. You're doing it because you have to do it. You didn't really change the branch circuit as it goes into the actual structure, is, if you will. Now, one thing that became very clear, now this also applies for an outlet. If I'm moving a wall and I'm moving a receptacle, but I'm not extending it and I'm not more than six feet, and it's not adding any additional outlet or device to it, okay, then I'm okay. I don't have to change my whole scheme and put AFCIs in. This is important allowance. Now, in the past, people ask, where does the measurement come from? Does it start at the breaker, then you measure it up the cabinet, and then through the raceway or or cable or whatever, over, and then down? No, the measurement is from the point where it leaves the, the cabinet, to the other cabinet, for example, or other junction box. Or if it's a cabinet, panel board cabinet, where the panel board's been removed, and now I'm going to use that as a junction box, if you get away with that. At that point, I'm only measuring the six feet is between each uh, box. It's not measuring the conductor in the box. Okay? Important. Because if you were to add the conductors in the box, then the next thing you know, that six feet's not going to be very much. Okay? So again... The measurement does not include the conductors inside of the enclosure cabinet or junction box. Only the portion where it leaves and enters different boxes, okay? So that allows me to be able to move it. And as you know, I can have splices in there in the box in the junction box or whatever, and I'm okay. Perfectly fine. That is not considered uh, you know, extending, okay? any type of branch circuits. You can agree to disagree, but that's what the code says. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do that, move my panel, and maybe I'm gonna take all of those non-metallics into a big junction box and then I'm gonna go with a, a conduit from there over and maybe it's just a small conduit, nipple, whatever it may be, and I'm going to run my conductors in there and get them out of there. Of course we gotta worry about number of conductors and arrays You know we gotta worry about all that. But Theory-wise, I can move it over, and I am not extending any of the of this branch circuit conductors, and I'm okay, up to six feet, all right? Now, 210.15, reconditioned equipment. A new section was added that prohibits the recondition of GFCI devices, AFCI devices, and ground fault circuit protection, okay? Actually, excuse me, not ground fault circuit protection, ground fault protection, GFP, Okay, so it really doesn't matter. GFCIs can't be reconditioned, AFCIs can't be reconditioned, and GFP devices or equipment cannot be reconditioned, okay? So this is an example where several sections, different ones in the code throughout, gave permission to and against being able to recondition something. Well, obviously, the manufacturers of these devices came back and said, you know what? These are very sensitive electronic equipment, okay? Nope, no recondition is going to be done on these, okay? Okay. Now, there's a long list of what can be reconditioned and what can't, and and I shudder to go through all of them, but I'll just kind of give you a rundown, if you will, of what can and what can't, because I'm sure we won't cover all of them. So again, we cover this under 210.15, GFCI devices, AFCI devices, and GFP equipment. Can it be reconditioned? Absolutely not. 240.62, dealing with low-voltage fuse holders and low-voltage non-renewable fuse holders? Absolutely not. 240.88A1, molded case circuit breakers, absolutely not. Your standard molded case circuit breaker that's in your panel, absolutely not. 240.88A2, low and medium voltage power circuit breakers, yes, with manufacturer's assistance. Okay, guidance on that. 240.88A3, high voltage circuit breakers, yes, again, Notice a trend here. These are two high-dollar items, but there are a lot of componentry involved in it. Yes, the manufacturers, with their assistance, could be uh, reconditioned. Uh, 240.88B1, low-voltage power circuit breakers with electronic trip units, no, not going to replace those, okay? I mean, not going to recondition those. You're going to replace those. Not reconditionable. Um. For 240.88b2, for electromechanical protective relays and current transformers, yes, the manufacturers will allow you to recondition it. 240.102, medium voltage fuse holders and medium voltage non-renewable fuses. Just think about fuses and what they are. The answer is no. They are not reconditionable. Receptacles, 406.3a, No. Not going to renew them. I know that people had, remember Katrina down there in Louisiana, and there's these devices and things that were floating all over the country that were in a flood condition. Absolutely not. Receptacles are not to be reconditioned. 406.7, attachment plugs, cord uh, connectors, and flange surface devices. Absolutely not. Not going to be reconditioned. 408.8A, panel boards. Absolutely not. Not reconditioned. Now, people argued about this one, but it's certainly not going to allow you to recondition it. Now, let's get a little more expensive. 408.8B, switchboards and switch gear, or sections or independent sections of switchboard or switch gear is probably a better term. Yes, those can be reconditioned under the manufacturer's guidance and they'll give you direction on what to do. Uh, 410.7, luminaires, lamp holders, and retrofit kits. No. No reconditioning can go on that. 411.4, listed low voltage lighting systems or lighting systems assemblies from listed parts. No, not going to happen. Those low voltage lighting systems, not reconditionable. Now, 490.49, switch gear or sections of switch gear. Yes, it is reconditionable. Now, now these are going to be pretty no brainers right here. fire pump controllers and transfer switches. Absolutely not. Too much is relied on these that we're not going to allow you to recondition those. Um, Again, transfer switches and fire pump controllers, not going to happen as applies to 695. Okay, not going to do it. 700.5C, automatic transfer switches. Nope. Can't recondition them. 701.5C, automatic transfer switches for legally required standby systems. Nope, not going to recondition them. 702.5, transfer switches for optional standbys, like what you would get for your dwelling. Well, you probably figured it. Nope, no recondition on those. 708.24, transfer for critical operations or cop systems. Again, just think transfer equipment, absolutely not. It's not going to be reconditioned at all. Now, you're probably going to say to me, But, Paul, is it reconditioning if I replace one piece on it? Well, I'll let you worry about that with your AHJ because if it's not working and you're adding something to it to get it back to working, then that, to me, kind of constitutes reconditioned. Now, remember what I said about recondition. If it's under, uh, let's say, like an industrial establishment and you have maintenance crew and they're routinely fixing things, then it might not be something that's considered reconditioned. It might be something that they do as part of their normal course of maintenance and work. Okay, so again, being reconditioned, you know, you have to look at the rules independently to see whether or not it's going to apply or not. So when we're talking reconditioned yes or no, this is just broadly yes or no. Okay, each one, if it really applies to you, go look at it more closely and work with your AHJ. But remember, Most of these, like transfer switches, you know what? They're just not going to be, you know, reconditioned, okay? They're just, they're not going to do it. The manufacturers are not going to put their warranty behind the product for you to recondition it. But talk to the manufacturer. See what they say about it. At all fails, always go to the manufacturer and ask. Communication equipment. Again, yes, in some applications, as long as you meet all of the marking requirements in 110.21a2, if you meet all that, then, yeah, we'll let you do some of that. It's not a problem, okay? All right. 210.52c, receptacles at countertops and work surfaces. Okay. Now, revisions were clarified that receptacle outlets installed for countertops and work surfaces, and that is under 210.52C, are not permitted to satisfy the requirements for receptacle outlets placement for wall spacing in 210.52A. So what are we saying here? In your mind, you have a counter, and I have a receptacle on the counter, okay? and it's serving the counter. Well, now I have a wall space that's between the counter and, let's say, a door. And that wall space is two feet wide, so 210.52 is going to require a receptacle there because that's the normal wall space, okay? We have counter space and we have wall space. Now, you might say, well, that wall space, why am I going to run a circuit? Why am I going to run one of my cables all the way over there for that? I mean, it's right there. So let me just drop out of the counter and hit it. It's right there. Well, not going to work, okay? In a sense of the circuit is fine. If it's small appliance brand circuit and that's in the kitchen, drop down and hit it all you want. That's not going to be the issue. The issue is with this is that the countertop surface receptacle is not permitted to actually satisfy that receptacle. So this is not about the branch circuit because if it's in the kitchen, small appliance branch circuit allows me to hit the countertop and hit the other receptacles in the kitchen. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that two foot space that requires a receptacle. This is you looking at it and going, I'm not going to put a receptacle there. I've got one on the countertop. It's within six feet of the door. It can serve the countertop and it can serve that one. This is what it's saying. It says no. So you're going to have to come out if you want. It's in the kitchen. Let's say I'm going to come out of that countertop receptacle. And I'm going to drop down and hit that receptacle. This is very much about the receptacle being there, not the fact that it's on the small appliance brand circuit because that's Okay. Okay. It's just the fact that you can't say that that countertop receptacle can keep me from having to put a receptacle on that wall space. That's what this is all about, okay? All right. Hopefully, I made that very clear. Again, receptacle outlets installed to serve the countertops and work surfaces in kitchens, pantries, breakfast rooms, dining rooms, and similar areas cannot be considered as receptacle outlets required by 210.52a anywhere else. Okay. But that is dealing with the ones that are the countertop. Okay. That's the outlet. If it's to serve a countertop, then the one that you still have to have the ones that serve the wall space requirement. Now they might be on the same circuit, but these are, we're talking about the placement of receptacles. That's what this rule is dealing with. Okay. All right, let's talk about islands and peninsulars, countertops. Now, prior to this, many years ago, we had what was called the connecting edge. And that is when we had a countertop along a wall, and then we had the island, or I mean, excuse me, a peninsula that stuck out from the counter, that that imaginary connecting edge was the point where the part that sticks out connects to the counter that's connected against the wall, okay? And that was the point where we started our measurement, on the peninsula. Well, last cycle in the 2017, our measurement goes from the perpendicular wall, so all the way back to the wall where the uh, countertop is against the wall, and then the island, I mean, the uh, peninsula is sticking out of the counter, but the measurement was all the way back to the perpendicular wall, and it was the wall that was perpendicular to the actual peninsula, okay? And we measured from there. Well, the result in that measurement could result in one receptacle on a peninsula that might have been really, really, really long. So we had a change in the, the 2017 code uh, and again in the 2020 code. Now, in the 2020 code, we go from measurements in two foot by 12 inches to, to be a qualifier for a peninsula. Now we've moved into a square footage calculation, okay, in order to do that, determine how many we need. Okay, so again, previously how we measured it was across the top, and as long as the peninsula, for example, had a 24 by 12 inch or greater, uh, 24 in the long dimension, 12 in the short dimension, okay, then we'd have one receptacle, and it didn't matter how long it was, all right? Well, now we have a change that is going to be targeting getting more receptacles on those islands and more receptacles on those peninsulas. Okay. So, again, let's look at some of the rules here. So here's how it's going to work. Again, islands or peninsula, because it's all based on square footage now. At least one receptacle is required to be installed or provided for the nine square feet or fraction thereof of a countertop or work surface. So when we say nine square feet, that'd be a three by three island or a three by three peninsula. If it was nine square feet or fraction thereof. So if it's eight square feet, That's a fraction thereof. So you're going to have at least one on that island or peninsula, okay, and to supply, to to feed that work surface. That's your first one. Now, an additional receptacle is going to be required for every additional 18 square feet or fraction thereof on the countertop or work surface, okay? So now, when you do this, at least one of those receptacles has to be located within two feet of the outside end of the peninsula. So if we're dealing with the peninsula and we've got the one in the nine square feet, and let's say we have an additional 17 square feet, uh, an additional over the nine, then I'm going to need at least one more because 17 would be a fraction thereof of 18. So now I need two receptacles. Well, one of them has to be within two feet of the outside edge of the peninsula. Okay, so at least one. The additional one can be placed anywhere I want it to be. Okay, anywhere that I want it to be. Whether I'm the designer or whatnot, whoever can place it anywhere they need to be. Could they theoretically both be placed at the same location on the end? Probably not what we want, but nothing prohibits that application to do that. All right, so let's say I have a seven foot by four foot Island, okay, in the middle of my kitchen. How many receptacles is now? Well, well, previously I would only require one. Unless, of course, I had a sink in the middle and it divided into two separate spaces and both those separate spaces was 24 by 12, then I'd have to have one for each separate space. Okay, and of course it had to do with how much space behind the sink and all this kind of stuff. We've totally gotten away from that now. It's all based on square footage. So if I have a seven by tw- uh, four foot island, Okay, that is 7 times 4, that's 28 square feet. Now take the 28 minus the 9, okay, and that equals 19. Well, remember what it said? You have the 1 for the 9, and then each additional 18 square feet or fraction thereof. Well, I have 19 additional. So that's 1 for the 18, and that extra 1 foot, that is a fraction of 18. So that starts another 18. So it's nine feet, then it's 18 feet, and then it's another 18 feet or fraction thereof. So in this case, I need three receptacles on this island. And you place them where you want them on an island, okay? Now, already, I can tell you right now, people gripe about there's not enough room to put them on the island anyway, or people don't want them on their island. I get it. But reality is, this is going to require more receptacles out there to think about, okay? So that's how that works. Uh, my audio's off. I again, I I can't control the audio, so we're just going to kind of keep going with it because I'm really am not going to stop now. All right, so now let's talk about a peninsula. Same concept. So we measure the peninsula from the connecting edge out. Let's say it's seven feet, and then the counter is three feet. So that's seven by three. So that's seven times three is twenty-one square feet. Okay. Now. Take your 21 minus the nine, because we're required to have one for nine anyway. Okay, so that is the one for nine. And so 21 minus nine is 12. So now I'm required to have an additional receptacle. Now, the first one has to be within two feet of the outside edge of the peninsula. And then I have the second one, which, again, I'm permitted to place anywhere that I want on that peninsula. Okay. So, again, that's kind of how it how it works out. So if I had a so let's look at the big picture here. If I had eight square feet, only one receptacle. If I had nine square feet, only one receptacle. If I have more than nine square feet uh, up to twenty seven square feet, which is the nine plus the additional 18, then I'd have two. Okay. now if I have twenty eight square feet. Then, uh, then I'm going to have another receptacle. So that would be three receptacles. So, again, that's how it works up all the way again. So nine for the first one, and then every 18 feet thereafter or fraction thereof is going to require an additional receptacle, okay? All right, so, again, uh, let's see what other. Uh, the next one is 210.52E3. Receptacles at balconies, decks, and porches. Now, in the past, the actual deck had to be connected to the dwelling unit, and we needed a receptacle that was out there uh, that at the deck. However, with the 2020 code now, we have a lot of freestanding decks that aren't really connected to the dwelling. So still going to have to have the receptacle, But we now have a 4-inch horizontal threshold. So at least one receptacle outlet uh, accessible from the balcony, deck, or porch. In this case, would probably be a a deck. uh, On any balcony deck is now required for decks that are 4 inches horizontal of the dwelling unit. So whether it's right next to it or up to 4 inches away in separation, still going to have to have the receptacle there. Now, if it's 10 inches away, then that is free. That is too far away. Then you would not have to have the receptacle, obviously, for that application if that was a deck you're dealing with. Uh, the gap is, is common now, an air gap or a drain gap that allows moisture to not get caught between the, the connection to the ledger board and causes it to rot out, that type of application. All right, um, Receptacles for meeting rooms. Now, you probably remember in 2017, that we had this new way to calculate receptacles in meeting rooms, because prior to the 2017 code, there was no requirement to have receptacles in meeting rooms. But we know that we've got our laptops, our cell phones, we're all this stuff, so we end up trying to find receptacles, and then we got extension cords, and we're daisy chaining, and all this type of stuff around. Well, that was resolved in the 2017 code. But however It only seemed to apply to square and rectangular-shaped rooms, but we have a lot of round rooms. So we've changed it now to not just be specific to square and rectangular rooms. There's a lot of round rooms being utilized. So the previous language in 210.71b2, when it was talking about floor receptacles, basically was interpreted as being only applicable to square or rectangular, not round meeting rooms. So to clarify that, oh, and also... 210.71 has now been moved to 210.65. So it's now been moved back closer to the receptacle requirements rather than on the other side of of lighting outlet requirements in 210.70. It's moved back near receptacles, okay? It's a better location to harmonize with receptacles, all right? Because that's what we're talking about. So the revision now deals with non-rectangular rooms in general, okay? So it says floor outlets now applies to meeting rooms with any floor dimension that is 12 feet or greater in any direction, okay? So no matter any direction I go, if the room is 12 feet or greater, then it's going to have the floor receptacle requirement, where we're going to have to have those floor receptacles, okay? Um, let's see here. Also, remember that the receptacles, at least one of the floor receptacle outlets, Uh, serving receptacles uh, located at a distance not less than six feet from any fixed wall allows for you to be able to get in and out. So that's the reason why we have those requirements for them to be at least six feet away from a fixed wall so that you won't trip over it. Uh, And the receptacles out there, then you won't be more inclined to run cords from the wall, fixed wall over to uh, maybe a projector or something like that. Now, it can be more than six feet away. It can be in the middle of the room if you want it, obviously put it where the projector is going to be. But again, that's all design. And so that's all kind of governed uh, by the designer and everything that they're doing for that as well. Okay. Uh, Another change that took place uh, in the 2020 code was to 215.9 GFCI protection for feeders. Now, Revisions provide correlation with GFCI protection requirements in 210.8 by removing the existing limitation of feeders to provide the GFCI protection uh, to only 15 and 20 ampere receptacle uh, brand circuits. So in this case now, I can actually have a feeder that is protected by GFCI, okay? And the feeder protects everything downstream, all right? And it's protected. They're all considered GFCI protected, okay? Okay. So, again, kind of one of those changes that took place for feeders in 2.15.9. So, again, just wanted to add that in there that that makes a change. So, in this, I could have, for example, a panel. And this panel is going to handle boat hoists. Uh, maybe it's going to handle the outside air conditioning unit. Remember, that outlet needs to be uh, supplying it. It's got to be AFC uh, GFCI protected now. Okay. Well, I could put a feeder... Uh, GFCI in and that entire panel everything on it is now GFCI protected okay I could do that um, or I could do traditional way again I could put additional uh, you know GFCIs in the individual panel itself but again I have the allowance and it says it used to have say feeders supplying 15 or 20 amp rated brand circuits permitted to be protected by GFCI installed in a ready accessible location uh, now it says feeders are permitted to be protected by GFCI installed in a readily accessible location in lieu of the provisions for such interrupters as specified in 210.8 and 5906 b uh, a. So what is this telling me? I can protect the entire feeder now if I want. Now, you're going to have to weigh the price of buying a bunch of individual GFCI devices or whether or not you can buy a GFCI uh, breaker that feeds a panel. Which do I want to do? Well, if you add it up, it's probably cheaper to buy the breaker for the feeder than it would be to buy all the individual ones in the panel, okay? So, different things to look at um, and how to apply it, all right? Well, let's go on and stop here because, again, I'm at, oh, I don't know what the time is uh, on this thing. I think I'm at, oh, I don't know what the stream was, uh, almost two hours for this stream. Um, so, um. That's kind of uh, covering up to that point. And of course, we'll have another one later that's going to continue on from here. So hopefully you got something out of that. So uh, for all of my folks that are over on the podcast, I'm going to end the podcast. And for those that are on the video stream, I'll answer some questions that you might have up to this point. So again, sorry for the extended podcast uh, for those over there listening, but uh, I appreciate you hanging in there with me. Till next time, stay safe. And for those on the video stream, stay tuned. We'll answer some questions in that application as well. Okay. You've been listening to Electrician Live with your host, Paul Abern.